Welcome to Faith Sermons and Studies with Pastor Joe DeVitro. That's for Junior Church downstairs, and uh, as they're dismissed, it's uh, good to be back and with you here today, and uh, we're looking forward to, oh, I've, I've been looking forward to opening the Word of God with you here, and uh, we're going to be in the book of Micah, so I'm going to give you a couple extra minutes to find that one, Micah chapter 6 specifically this morning. And uh, this is where we're going to springboard from today. And uh, how many of you remember growing up when you would hear some of the most dreaded words that a parent could tell you as a child? All right. And when, when I get the, when I say this phrase, some of you might go into Tourette's or might have a little breakout or something, but that, that's okay. We'll wait for you to recover. Uh, but you heard something like this. You better find something to do or I'll find something for you to do right or or how about this if you don't have anything to do i'll find something for you right and anytime your parents said that you knew that you were on the short end of that stick right you knew at that moment that things were not going to remain as they are and that they are they are wanting you to do something productive because the thing that you're doing right now is what unproductive or it's annoying, or they don't need your help in doing what you're doing. So you better find something to do, or I will find something for you to do. And all of us in code understood that meant what? I don't want to do that. I better go find something to do, right? I'm glad our Heavenly Father doesn't act like our earthly parents do, aren't you? Aren't you glad? God's not up in heaven like, you better do something, or I'm going to find something for you to do. No, our, our, our heavenly fathers is, uh, father is different than our earthly fathers are. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that his grace and mercy are greater than, than our grace and mercy. I'm glad that our, our ways of doing things are different than his ways of doing things. And I'm glad his thoughts and things are different than my thoughts. Because there have been times where I look at my kids and I'm like, you better go find something to do or else, right? Uh, it's not going to work out good for you. You're not going to like what I give you. Uh, however, God, in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, gives us instructions in his word that tells us exactly what he expects us to do. But many, problem, many times the problem is not that we're ignorant or not that we don't know what he wants. It's just we've been told what he wants and we forget and substitute what we think he wants for what he actually wants. And Israel was guilty of doing that in their past, and so are you and I today. And we're going to look at this passage in, in the book of Micah. Has everybody found it? Micah chapter 6. And uh, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture here, and it says this, starting in verse 6. So Micah 6, starting in verse 6, and uh, there's a question that's going to be asked here. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? So there's a question. What, what am I supposed to bring to God? What am I supposed to be doing for God, right? And, and the logical question is, you know, should I bring calves that are a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with 10,000 or with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give him my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You know, what, what does God really want? What does he really expect? He has told you, O oh man, what is good 
And what does the, law, the Lord require of you but to do three things? What are they? Let's read them together. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. How many of you, that was your three you were going to pick? I think for a lot of us, we'd go probably more earlier in the verse. Maybe we'd go to a different passage of Scripture altogether. God wants obedience. God wants this. But what did God actually say in this portion of Scripture? What is He actually saying that He wants more than anything else from His people? He wants them to do justice. Is God a God of order? Is God a God of law? Is God a God of right and wrong? Is God a God of absolutes? Sure. He wants us to do justice. He wants us to love kindness. All right? This is the steadfast love of the Lord. His loving kindness. And he he wants us to walk in humility. Now, if I were to survey everybody here this morning, which I don't have time to do, but if I were to survey everybody and I were to ask you, what does do justice mean? What would you say? Do what's right, right? Or, or something to that effect, maybe. What about loving kindness? That's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? If you're kind, aren't you loving? And if you're loving, aren't you kind? So is that like kind, kind, or loving, loving? What, what, what is, what's being defined here in loving kindness? What, why those words? Why do you use that? Uh, how would you define that? And then last of all, and walk in humility. A lot of times when we think of humility, we think of a doormat, Right? Somebody being taken advantage of because they're humble, because they're not assertive, because they're not whatever. And we give this connotation like humility is weakness. And we don't want to portray weakness because we're strong and and we're good and we're right and, and we have the truth. But I would argue none of those thoughts that I just gave you are what this verse says. And this morning my goal is by the end of the message for you to be able to find these three terms. And for you to know exactly what God wants from you, specifically as his follower, what he wants you to be doing for him. And uh, so let, let, let me reread Micah here again. Now that you've kind of heard this and thought through this, let's listen and see what God is actually saying through his prophet here to the nation of Israel, who is following the law, who is keeping the law, who is not living up to the standard that God wants them to live up to, because they're focused on the wrong things rather than the one thing that God actually cares about. And let's look at what it says here again. What shall I come before, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? With what should I do that? And then he goes on to say, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with ten thousands of rams or, or with thousands of rams or with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn son for my transgression? What did God do for you? Gave his firstborn son for your transgression. Is that what God needs today us for us to give our firstborn back to him? No, he doesn't need that. So let's go through and let's define what these three things are. God wants us to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before our God. So let's start in the order that God starts. Let's do justice, right? If we were to find this, many times we would go to the law, we would look at the law in the Old Testament, and we would say justice is keeping the law of God. 
How many would say that's kind of where you think? Some of you are not sure. You're like, I think you're sucking me into a dark hole here. I'm not sure I want to go down. How many don't want to vote right now? Right? The jury's out. Um, let's use the Bible to define this idea. Can we do that? Amos chapter 5, verse 24. The Bible says this, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What two things are contrasted in that verse? Justice and righteousness. So let justice roll down like waters. If water is going downhill, anybody want to stand in front of that? Why? There's power. There's might. So this justice has power, it has might. And righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream, a stream it, the waters come and they just keep on coming. So the justice is, it has the idea of coming with power, with might, and it just keeps coming. All right? So kind of hold that in your, your mind. Justice is a major theme throughout all of Scripture. It contains many calls for justice, commands to worship God for His justice. Justice has to do with the conduct in relation to others. Just behavior accords with what is morally right, what is morally fair. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4 tells us that God is just. He's a just God, worthy of our worship. The justice of God can be defined as this. That essential and infinite attribute which makes his nature and his ways the perfect embodiment of equity and constitutes the model and the guardian of equity throughout the universe. Now that's a Bible dictionary 1859. How many of you talk that way today? I mean, that's clear as mud, isn't it? So what's it say? The essential and infinite attribute, which makes, a nat- makes his, God's nature and his ways the perfect embodiment of equity. How many of you think that God is equal? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three, right? We call that the what? The Trinity, okay? God is co-equal in his existence. He's the perfect embodiment of equality, right? We see that. And constitutes him a model and the guardian of equity throughout the universe. And because God is one, God is whole, God is perfect, he thus can then place on all of his creation what? The same equity. Is God fair? Or is he absolutely fair? Is God just? Or is he absolutely just? Is God righteous? Or is he absolutely righteous? You see the difference? You and I can do righteous acts. God is righteous. So let me ask you a question. Are you righteous? Are you just? Are you perfect? You know what? If you're in Christ, you have that because it's been imputed to you, but you don't have it naturally. And that's the glory of this. This verse is speaking to believers. It's speaking to people who are followers of Christ. And if you're a follower of Christ, then you have the capability to do justice. You have the ability to be loving kindness, steadfast love. And you have the ability to humble yourself before God. So this morning, as we jump in here, because of the essence of who God is, in his infinite attributes that have been given to us through imputation by being in the family of God, we have the ability to do what this verse is telling us to do. So that's, that's the first thing we need to understand when it comes to the justice of God. The second thing we need to understand really is developed in Psalm 89, 
verse 14, and then in Psalm 99 and verse 4. And these two verses are going to tell us this, that God's rule over the universe is grounded in justice and righteousness. There's never a time where God has been unjust. It's against his ability to be unjust. He is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. Psalm 99 and verse 4 says this, The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity, and in Jacob you have done what is just and what is right. So God declares things that are just, things that are right. He knows right from wrong. Psalm 19 and verse 9 says, The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Adam and Eve saw the justice of God when they were punished for sin in the Garden of Eden. Even in that judgment, however, they, ex- they didn't just experience justice, but they also experienced what? Mercy. God clothed them with skins from animals, and God showed mercy. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. God's justice requires him to deal with sin. Scripture records many instances where God's justice is meted out on mankind for rebellion. How about Korah? How about Noah's day? How about the plagues of Egypt? How about the destruction of Ahab and Jezebel? How about Babylonian captivity? Just to name a few. But the justice of God also is demonstrated on the cross, was it not? As Jesus was being crucified for the sins of the world were being laid on him. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5 tell us that. And Jesus' death became the propitiation or the satisfaction of God's justice for sin. God put Christ forward as a propitiation of our sin and not for ours only, but for the sin of who? The whole world. That's Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. That's Romans chapter 3 and verse 26. Look at 3.25. Who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. But then look at verse 30, or, uh, 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, what? Just and the justifier of the one who has faith in who? Who's the justifier? God is. God is justifying for us through Jesus Christ that our sins are not just forgiven, but they are absolutely paid in full. Who paid for our sin in full? Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the children of God, the sons of God. And for that, we have inherited... We have been imputed to us the ability to do justice, the ability to discern right from wrong, the ability to discern what we should do from what we should not do. And when we do justice, when we do rightly in the eyes of God, we actually are fulfilling what God wants us to do. He has imputed to us the ability to live for Him. He's imputed to us the ability to do what he wants. But of course, it was also at the cross where God's mercy and his grace was on full display as well. God demonstrated his great love towards us and that while we were still sinning, Christ died for what? For who? For us. Romans 5, 8, right? At the cross, we find the intersection of justice and mercy. Isn't that kind of an oxymoron if you think about it? Justice demands what? 
action. Mercy gives what? Most of the time, non-action. Right? So it's at the cross that you have action and non-action colliding together as a benefit for you and I. As a benefit for us. He who didn't know sin became sin for us that we might become the children of God. God's justice was meted out in full upon Christ. As God's wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ's body, as the darkness overcame the earth at the time, God's justice prevailed, but in the midst of God's justice was what? God's mercy and grace that He gave you salvation and made it available for all who would believe. Isn't that awesome? So you say, well, Pastor Joe, that's awesome, but how, how do we live that? How do we do that today? Well, how many of you know right from wrong? Right? How do we know what's right? How do we know what's good? Who defines that? For the believer, it's God, isn't it? His word. He tells us what is good and what is wrong. He tells us what is beneficial and what is not beneficial for us. And he has given to us the ability to do two things as we live in the world. One, we can speak the truth in love. Or two, we can go around judging everybody else. Now, if we're going to do justice, by God's definition of justice, what would we do? How would we act? What would we say? Let me give you a mandate for justice. Look back at Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 again there. He says, because God is just, he demands of mankind that is created in his image also display justice to others. We are, we are designed to show justice to others. Before Israel had a king, God ensured that his people had justice and that the whole book of Judges attests to the fact that God wanted justice to prevail. He gave Deborah. A prophetess, he set up court beneath a palm tree in Judges 4 and verse 5. Samuel presided over a circuit court, traveling from place to place to administer justice. 1 Samuel 7 and verse 16. Later, he becomes king, or later the king became the nation's chief justice. The Bible tells us that God's justice applies to civil life. You know, here in Minnesota, there's a, there's a thing being passed right now about abortion. Christians should speak up about that. We, uh, we speak on behalf of those who are perishing, those who don't have a voice. We have a right to do that. But we're not just talking politics here. We're talking about what does God say is right. We're talking about what does God want us to really be declaring in our world today. That's what that's what justice is. That, that's, what, that's where justice is at. Is what is right. Not what does the world say is right. What does God say is right? And that's what we declare. Wow. I feel like the voice of like declare the word of the Lord. God wants us to be declaring what is true and what is right in his eyes, not ours. How many of you think something is unjust or something is wrong and, and we could get all caught up in the social justice movement of our time? And you know what? There are some good aspects of that, but most of it is man-driven. Well, who declares what's right? Who declares that homosexuality is right today? Does the U.S. government do that or does God say it's not right? What about when it comes to things that control? Do we allow the world to tell us what is right or do we declare what God says is right? And you see, as believers, we have the obligation to do justice 
with the time that we have. Not that we're out crusading against the government or against a party, because here's the reality. Republicans are messed up, and so are the Democrats. All right? Here's the question. Where are God's people? Where are God's people who are called by God's name, who will humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways? Then God will hear from heaven. And when he hears from heaven, what does he promise to do? Heal the land of the people who are calling out. In this situation, it's Israel. But in our situation, it would be our country. And you know, when we live in a world where we're sitting back and we're not going forward for Christ, don't be surprised when the world wins. I mean, for crying out loud in America, it's hard enough to get people to come to church today. The average is 20 to 40% of church, church attendance is down in America right now. That's huge. Say there was 100 million people that went to church. How many are going to church now? 80? 60 million? That's a huge swing if you stop and think about it. And we need to do justice. We need to do what God wants us to do and declare what God wants us to do. This isn't a way that we go around judging others. Isaiah 1 and verse 17 says, Learn to do good. Learn to seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Do those sound like noble things? Yeah. Is that American? Hardly. Isaiah is one of the oldest books of the Bible we have, isn't it? The, oh, one of the oldest scrolls we have today is the book of Isaiah. And it says, learn to do good. Where do you learn to do good? God's word. God declares what's good. God is, he is the source and essence of goodness. Seek justice. Where do we find justice? In his word, in, at God. Correct oppression. Bring to justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. I like what Jeremiah says in chapter 22 and verse 3. He says, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. You notice two things that kind of run together in these verses. Do justice and what? They kind, of, they kind of are tied together here. Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4. Look what it says here. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. What are Christians, who are Christians supposed to be defending? Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Do you see weakness in our world today? Do you see oppression in our world today? Do you see people in despair in our world today? Who's going to go help them? Well, the government will. That's not who should be. It should be the believers. It should be Christians. We see somebody in need. We should be reaching out to them. We should be helping them. We should be coming alongside them. We see somebody being mistreated. We should go and vouch for them, defend them. And when we see somebody's rights being taken away, then we should stand up for that. We should defend that. Not in a, not in a militaristic way, but in a spiritual way. I like what it says here in John 7 and verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with what? What is right judgment? Don't you love when a word defines a word? Do not judge, but judge. Right? Do not judge, but judge with judge. 
The words matter. Do not judge by appearances. How does man judge most of the time? We look on the outward appearance, but God looks where? He looks on the heart. Just because somebody doesn't look right doesn't mean they aren't right. Doesn't mean they don't deserve to be helped. Doesn't mean that they should be ostracized. Just because they don't fit our mold doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't look to try to be a blessing to them. That we shouldn't reach out to them. So God says, you want to do what I want you to do? Then you need to do justice with your time and with your life. Invest in those that are weak. Invest in those who have needs. Invest in those who need help. Because you have what you need because God gave it to you. And now he expects you to help others. Right? So, do justice. But how about the second thing he says? Loving kindness. What is this? Loving kindness. Some people try to say loving kindness is mercy, and there's an aspect of mercy in loving kindness. But I don't think all mercy is loving kindness either. What do we, not only do we want justice, but we also want mercy, kindness, benevolence, charity. The New American Standard Bible and the King James Version both use this word, loving kindness, as one word. And, um, the Hebrew word translated loving kindness in these two translations is the word chesed. And it means a covenant loyalty. How many of you are married or been married? Did you know that you chesed with your mate? You made a covenant loyalty to them. You said, I take you so-and-so to be my lawfully wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, till death do us. And who'd you make that vow to? You made it to them. You made it to the witnesses present at your wedding. And ultimately, you made that vow before the almighty ever-existing one, right? God himself. And, and you made the vow contingent on one thing, till death do us part. So we made a covenant of loyalty with our partner until the day that we depart from the world. And at that point, the Bible clearly teaches that you're free to remarry, you're free to stay single, you can, you're free to do whatever because the covenant has been broken by death. Well, loving kindness has the idea of being in a loyal covenant with somebody else. In this situation, it's God. God desires loving kindness. Loving kindness can describe one person's action towards another. We can see it in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 13. Genesis 21, verse 23. Joshua chapter 2, verse 12. All of these are most often used to describe the character of God. His steadfast love for who? Us. His creation. The things that he created. Many places in Scripture speak of the loving kindness of the Lord, like in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 30, or chapter 20, verse 6, or chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Micah chapter 7 and verse 18 says that God delights in showing his loving kindness to the world. We praise him, Psalm 138 and verse 2, we praise him for his loving kindness that he demonstrates to us. But the specific word seems to imply a slightly different character trait than the basic goodness and compassion on all of creation. When God uses the word loving kindness or chesed, it, it, he uses 
it in a way that relates mainly to God's character. God is, in his character, is in a covenant, loyal relationship with all his people. Does Israel have a loyal covenant relationship with God? Sure they do. God calls them his chosen what? People. He chose them. They didn't choose him. By the way, the church today, did we choose God or did God choose us? We love him because he first, we reciprocate love. So God's loving kindness is unconditional on behalf of him to another person in the covenant. Let me demonstrate it this way. Loving, loving kindness is God's kindness and steadfast love for his children, especially evident to us when he meets our needs. How many times has God ever provided? And you're like, wow, God really loves me because he, look what he did for me. You know, when your parents did something for you on your birthday or, or gave you a gift or provided something that you wanted, you would, you would think in your mind, wow, my parents really what? They really love me because they, they care. They did something for me. But in a passive relationship, have you ever been in a relationship where the other person used you? Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it's a family member. And they use you. And, and do you feel loved in that moment? No. We don't feel loved. We feel used. We feel abused. We feel taken advantage of. We feel foolish. We feel dumb. Like, how did we allow that to happen to us? God's steadfast love is this. Regardless of what we do, his love never changes because he made a covenant to love us. Think of John 3.16. For God so... When did he love him? When did he start? When does God not love the world? When does God cease to care for the creation that he created? Is there a point that that really happens? Now, does God's wrath and judgment and justice come pouring down on this planet? Sure. And he destroys this earth because of what? The wickedness that's in it, the sin. But does God hate the people that sin? No. Does God love sinners? Yeah. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever might believe in him should not... God doesn't want sinners to perish. He wants sinners to have everlasting. And he, he entered in such a covenant with humankind because of their sin that he sent his son to die in our place based on the fact that he wants us, loves us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. We sing about that, don't we? The steadfast love of the Lord never changes. Right? We, we, we know this. We sing about this, but do we actually understand it? That means this. As a Christian, you can go out and sin, and does that change God's love on your life? No. Now, does it bring judgment? Does it bring justice? Yeah. Because whom the Lord loves, he, he chastens. Just like a father does a child. Your child does wrong. You don't say, well, that's okay, Johnny. Keep putting your hand on the stove. You'll feel better after a while. You'll lose all the, once you lose all the feeling in the outer part of your hand, it'll get better. A parent that allows that to happen, do they love their children? Or do they really hate their kid? I mean, what parent sits there and thinks, wow, this is fun to watch my kid get burned? Nobody. 
Because we love them, we protect them. Because we love them, we give them guidance. Because we love them, we give them rules and law and and things to abide by so that we can protect them. And a loving God is going to do the same thing for his people. He's going to define what is good and what is evil and what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. And God in his great love towards us, he demonstrated that love in dying in our place and dying for us. God's loving kindness is abundant. It's great in its extent. It's everlasting. It's fullness of goodness. It's fullness of loving kindness. His steadfast loving actions on behalf of us knows no bounds, the Bible tells us in Psalm chapter 57 and verse 10. By the way, isn't kindness part of the fruit of the Spirit? I love what Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7 says. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? We kind of get the golden rule off of this, don't we? Do unto others as you would have done unto you. Blessed are those who show mercy, because they receive what? They get mercy. So God wants you to do justice with mercy. He wants you to declare what is true over here but he wants you to do it with compassion and love because we got to bring those people along with us so do justice speak the truth speak for those who who have no defense but at the same time as you're declaring that truth understand that the only reason you are where you are is because god demonstrated mercy you're not good because you're good you're good because of god you, you have what you have because God demonstrated his love towards you. And that brings me to uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. And I love what it says here. Having gifts that differ according to the what? The loving kindness. You could argue that's loving kindness right there. That having gifts that differ according to the loving kindness that has been given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, what God has given to you. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, and the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, which one of those do you have? How many of you are perfect in all of those? Go back to verse 6, though. What did verse 6 tell us? Verse 6 gave us a stipulation for these verses. He said that as you're, you're getting these things, understand that gifts are given to each one in a different measure. Some are going to be great at prophesying. Some are going to be great at giving. Some are going to be great at teaching. Some are going to be great at leading. Some people are going to be cheerleaders. Don't you love the cheerleaders? We can do this. Let's go. I was at a basketball game last week and they were getting blown out 67 to 14. And guess what the cheerleaders were doing? We are number one. We are. I'm like, no, you're a far number two right now. You are not number one. But you know what? It didn't, ra- didn't matter what reality was. They were doing their job and they were cheering their team on. And regardless of whether there was victory or defeat, they were going to do their job and see it to the end. And you know what? I congratulate those cheerleaders for, for being faithful. They were there, they were cheering, they were doing their job, their team was getting whooped. And you know what? That's okay. They won, they lost, things go on, right? Games aren't the end of everything. 
But in the church, we need cheerleaders. We need those with zeal. We need those with the financial contributions that are able to carry things. We need the ones who are able to exhort. We need, and then those of us who are deficient in the other areas, we should be getting with the ones who are good at this and learning from them. And that's why everybody needs to be in the church all the time because it's us training one another, iron sharpening iron, so a friend the countenance of his friend. It's us working together to do the work of the ministry. It's not that we're all great at everything, but we should all be doing something to help in everything. And God's people, when God talked to them in Micah chapter 6 there, he's like, I don't care about your offerings. I don't care. Do you really think I need oil? Do you really think I need calves? Do you really think I need these things? I'm God. What does God need from us today? Does he need your prayer of forgiveness of sin? He doesn't need it. Does he want it? Why? For you or for him? Does God really need to know that you have needs in your life? Does he, like, like is he in heaven just dumbfounded that you have needs? Like, wow, I never knew that about them. Hey, Jesus, did you know? That's not going on in heaven today. God's omniscient, is he not? Does he not know what you have need before you ever ask? Then who's prayer for? Him or you? Stop and think about what the Bible actually teaches. God is not impressed with our outward actions because who gave you the ability to do it? I know I've joked about this before. This last week it happened to me. I got in a car, tried to start it, and guess what the car did not do? It did not start. And you know what I said? Woo! No, that's not what I said. I was like, no, I don't have time for this. I got to be somewhere. Cars are supposed to start when you turn the key. Or, you, well, mind you, push a button. When I push a button, it should go boom. Not boom, but vroom. Mine did nothing. Did nothing. Just sat there. And I'm like, you're a car. Do your job. Right? Get me from point A to point B without leaving me at point A and a half. My car got me nowhere. Left me stranded. It didn't start. And I hate it when a car doesn't start. And you know what? God gave you all the abilities that you have. He knows what measure you have in every one of those categories. And he wants you not just to do justice with what you have, but to also be loving kind, to show mercy with what you have. Helping others come along. Helping others do what God wants you to do. And then finally, he wants us to walk humbly. He wants us to walk humbly. What does this mean? I think out of all of them, this is the one that Americans struggle with probably more than anything. But humility is a theme all through the Bible. From start to finish, humility is an attitude of spiritual modesty that comes from understanding our place in the order of larger things. You know, what is your life? How many of you have ever stood at your stove and was like, that vapor was awesome? Did you see it? Can we rewind that and show that vapor again? No, you watch steam come off your spaghetti noodles, and what do you do? Remember the pot? You take the lid off, and you go, and it comes flying out of there, and it's there, and it's gone, and then you're right to business, aren't you? You don't even miss it. You don't even care about it. It's such a finite, in, such a finite period of time in an infinite life that you think that you have. 
when you think about that moment, you don't really think about it until now it's brought up, right? You start to kind of contemplate. It entails not taking our desires, our successes, or our failings too seriously. Have you ever found somebody that's so stuck on themselves that they can't get out of their own way? Somebody that just is so set on, uh, on whatever they're set on that they just can't see beyond that? They can't get past it? Listen to what the Bible has to say about this. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Check this out. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. That's not good. But then verse 5. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose as Scripture says, he yearns jealous, jealously over the Spirit, <coughs> excuse me, that he's made to dwell in us? And then in verse 6 he says this. But he gives more what? Therefore, it says, God opposes or resists the proud, but gives grace to who? Remember back in the series I did several years ago, there are two twins in the Bible that you very rarely see separated. You remember who they are? Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. And you know what? Here we see both of them. We see grace and mercy together, working together to accomplish humility. I like what it says um, further on down here, well, back in the Bible. Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 3. I mean, how many of you had your devotions out of Zephaniah today? Anybody? No? But Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 3, the Bible says this, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden from the day of anger of the Lord. What are we to seek? Righteousness? What was paired with righteousness earlier? Do you remember? Justice. Right? Justice and righteousness, humility, and I would argue mercy and grace go together, right? Loving kindness is mercy. Humility is grace. Humility and grace here together again. Let me show you another passage, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Check these out. Having this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. So whose mind is it? It's Christ's mind in you. So it's been imputed to you. Okay? Verse 6. Here we go. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count himself equal or equality with God to be a thing that he grasps. But what's he do? Say it together. He emptied who? How can I empty you? Can I do that? Only you can get out of your own way. Only when Christ imputes his righteousness to you do you get out of your own way and you empty yourself like Jesus emptied himself. And what did he do? By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, what did he do for men then? Well, verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Did he do it for himself or did he do it for others? others. Humility is placing others over top of yourself. Humility is placing others, understanding your place in God's economy enough that you understand, yes, I have the truth. Yes, I can declare the truth. Yes, I love you enough to show mercy and grace to you because I'm going to come to you and I'm going to try to do something for you that's greater than anything else that can be done. Do justice. 
loving kindness, and walk humbly before our God. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God to be a thing that he grasped for himself. He didn't do it for his own pleasure. But he emptied himself, and he took on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the will of God. And what was God's will? God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. It was God's will for a son to die in the place of mankind. So let me ask you this, this morning. Do you know justice? Do you know, do you know how to do justice? Do you have loving kindness in your life? Do you understand what mercy is? And then are you humble? Do you understand grace? Because the Christian that knows what's right, understands what God's done for him, and then goes out and serves other people is exactly who God is looking for today in the world. That's what pleases God. God's not pleased with our offerings. He's not pleased with our good works. He's not pleased with all these things that enamor the church and enamor other people today. What God is interested in is the real Christians who will speak the truth in love and humble themselves, not for their will, but to God's will, and to do the things that God wants done. That's what God's looking for today. Without humility, we cannot expect deliverance from God. Without humility, we won't live lives that we, we put where we place others before ourselves and our own wants. We're always going to place ourselves as the center of attention. We're always going to place ourselves as the place for which we want to do what God wants us to do. Scripture gives helpful examples of humility through character examples. And by using the templates of the characters, we too can model what God wants from us. When we look at what Paul says, when we look at what Amos says, when we look at what Micah says, when we look at what Zephaniah say, says, when we look at the different people and characters of the Bible that humbled themselves and were used mightily of God, they didn't do what they wanted to do. They did what God wanted them to do because it was going to benefit somebody else. You know, some have asked me, why, what motivated me to resign as pastor of the church and to go do what, what I'm going to go do? You know what did it? It wasn't because of my own will. My will says I want a pastor. But the needs of others are greater than my own needs. And if I'm going to practice what I preach, then you've got to do it. And if God wants to care for other people more than myself at this time of my life, would it be wrong for me to rob God of that opportunity? Would it be disobedient? Sure it would. You know what we need to do, though? Even if we're in a secular job, we do justice. We walk in loving kindness and we fulfill the ministry God's given to us with humility. We humble ourselves to God's will. We declare what God says and we love the people around us as we go. And this is the essence of the Christian life. It's not about us. It's not about what we want. It's about what God wants to do through us for the benefit of him, the glory of him and the benefit of others. And this passage of Scripture in Micah is exactly the passage that God used to help me make the decision I made. Humility keeps Christians from walking their own path. Humility keeps us from living a life and a lifestyle that we think we need to live instead of the one that God wants you to live. 
Humility helps Christians ensure that they're prioritizing other people before themselves, not themselves first. If we lived according to our own desires, then what need would a Christian have for others? Think about it. If Christianity was all about me, then who gives a rip about anybody else? What would be the point? Why do I even care if you're going to be in heaven if it's about me? But if Christianity is really about what God can do through me to help others, now all of a sudden others really matter. And other people's well-being really matters. And their needs really matter. And Christianity becomes real. If we live according to our own desires, what need would a Christian have to help others? By seeking humility, we acknowledge who God is and his authority over our lives. What is your life? It's just a vapor. It's just a thing. With so many references to humility, only by standing on Scripture do we fully understand the concept that God talks about about humility. Through separating humble behavior from what is arrogant is not as hard as we might think. One prioritize, when one prioritizes other people, the other doesn't. When one acknowledges the need for the Lord, the other doesn't. In other words, humility prioritizes other people. Arrogancy doesn't. If I'm arrogant and self-stuck on myself, I don't care about other people. And we see that in our world, don't we? But, but think about this. If, if, if we move on and we think about, as I'm being humble and I prioritize other people, my needs get met along the way too because guess what other people start doing for you? They see needs in your life. And they see you helping other people and then they step up and they help you in areas that you need help. And you know what we call that area, that, that thing, that organism where they all see things that other people have need of and they meet those needs, whatever the cost? You know what we call that? Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and on. It's the church. And everyone, as they saw that had needs, as they met together, what did they do? They met one another's needs. That is the existence of the church. The problem is the church of today I think has lost some of the spiritual view that God wants for them. We focused on the outward and we missed some of the inward. And it is the humility, it is the loving kindness, and it is the justice of God that moors us back to the ministry that he has for us. If destruction befalls the arrogant, then I want to avoid that, don't you? I don't want to be arrogant. If God blesses the humble, then I want to be humble, don't you? I want the blessing of God in my life. So today, if we're struggling with pride, only you can make that choice to change. Remember, Jesus humbled who? Himself. You need to humble yourself. The Bible commands us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And there's a consequence when we do that. You start to grow. So choose God's... God's way over your way. Choose God's thoughts over your thoughts. And choose God over yourself. This change alone, I promise, will revolutionize your life, your relationship with God, and your relationship for others. Amen? So what are you going to do today? God says, this is what I want from you. I want you to do justice. I want you to demonstrate loving kindness. And I want you to walk humbly before your God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that this is the passage you used in my life to help me to make spiritual decisions and to understand what your will is for 
my life and for the family that, that you have left me in charge of. And Father, I pray this morning that as we contemplate your words and we hear the words and we ask why things happen and, and why you do certain things, that Father, we understand that this world is not about us. It's not about what we want. It's not about what we desire. If we're Christians, it's about what you want and what you desire and how you, you want to provide and to care for your sheep and your people. And Father, it is your sovereign will to move people. It's your sovereign will to help people. And Lord, you place us in different places at different times with different resources for such a time as this. And Father, just like Romans 12 talks about the different gifts that are given to each in the church, every believer. Father, every believer in here also has gifts. And some of them are really good at teaching. And some are really good at prophesying. And some are really good with finances. And some are really good with other things that the church needs. But Father... All of us fall short in all the areas all the time. And Father, it is your church that you ordained to bring together to where people could come together and have all things in common because we could help one another in the areas that we have need. And then, Father, you have fully equipped us in that church then to go into the world and proclaim justice, to show loving kindness or mercy, and to extend grace to those who need help by walking humbly before you. And Lord, help us to see the mission that you have before us. Help us to see that it's not about offerings. It's not about oil. It's not about lambs. It's not about rams. It's not about any of those things. It's really about seeking justice, having loving kindness to the world, and walking humbly before you. Lord, help us to do those three things for your glory, and it will benefit everything that we touch around us for your glory and for the good of others. Help us to do that, Father. In your name we pray. And all God's people said. Thank you.